Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 4. Carissa Sivar, to let you in. Lintamanda, wow, plumbing. She casts Detect Magic to get a better look at how it operates, even though she needs to figure out whether Keltham expects her to stay here and navigate that gracefully and can't afford to be distracted. Actually, maybe oblivious because distracted by magic would go over well. Keltham, lawful chaotic, earwane. I'm going to mention once, just to get it out of my system, that it looks like your civilization doesn't have the technology level necessary to build real bedrooms and won't have that technology level for a good long time, even if we all do our best. Okay, that part's done. Moving on. Carissa, what did you just do to the plumbing? Detect magic, just to get a good look at it. I haven't seen an indoor plumbing with hot water before. In his guest suite, even. Sermium must be doing well. I'm glad I'm more evil than the average Dathilani, and I'm not flipping out as hard as they would about a planet full of people who have to live without indoor plumbing. That's going to be a matter of scaling Element 29 smelting, for the pipes. And, I'm starting to wonder if energy to produce heat to smelt metal is actually going to be the sticking point, if indoor hot water is even rarer. And I should be looking into the fossil fuel scale before the metallurgical scale. Anyways, is this room magically advanced enough that the concept of a hot water shower is also known to it? You can put the hot water in the bath, Master Keltham, the small person says. Do you happen to know how this house heats the water? Contract with a fire elemental, I believe, ma'am. Does that scale to where we can contract a fire elemental to melt 1728 third tons of steel per day? If that's a spell somebody can cast once per day, without them being so expensive as to be completely unhirable, we can do an awful lot with 1728 third tons of steel per day squared. I don't know, Master Keltham. Binding's fourth circle. I don't think one fire elemental could melt that much steel, and I'm not sure they could melt any. You could maybe take the steel to the elemental plane of fire if you had a plan to get it back once you've melted it. That'd be two fifth circle spells a day. One to get there and one to get back, plus whatever you needed to survive there. How much water could they turn to steam in a day? And do fire elementals continually add heat energy to wherever they are, so that I can melt anything if I can insulate them well enough? Or do they have an ordinary temperature that only transfers heat to lower temperatures? I need to visit the library first, and then think about this stuff more later. What do I need to know before I go to the library, and then stumble back to my bedroom, take a bath, and go to sleep? I should plausibly eat a very quick dinner first or not eat it at all. I should know where to find Carissa Sivar in the morning for translation spell. And right, toilet. The thought occurs to Keltham for the first time that he may now have occasion to figure out where this sub-apartment's cuddle room is if people keep flirting with him, and he ever wants to do anything about that. Well, not a top priority, probably. Dathilan Iawain, why would you do that in your bedroom? Why would you do that on your bed? That is not what a sleeping pod or sleeping sink is designed to do, any more than a sex and cuddling pillow surface is designed to be slept on. Any flirting Carissa may have hoped to accomplish by mentioning beds or sleeping has been lost forever in the abyssal depths of the cultural gap. Bring dinner, Carissa tells the small person, who hurries off to do that. I'll ask for another room on this hall, I guess. I might be out later in the morning than you because preparing spells takes me about an hour, and I can't give you the language until I do that, but your existing one shouldn't have worn off yet. I don't know how fire elementals transfer heat. That's the toilet. 
It's a marble bench with a small round hole in it and a pit beneath, at least 15 feet deep. There shall be weighty conversations on this topic later, at a point where those conversations could actually result in better designed houses springing into existence. Noted on wizard morning patterns, is there a sign I can detect to know when it's safe to knock on your door? In the army, there is, and also protocols for when to interrupt me before that. But I don't actually know what civilians who aren't students do. I enlisted right out of school. I'll use the symbol from the army. No need to say what that is. It's surely the same symbol used by Dathalani military wizards. If there's any symbol on the door, don't knock. Knock only if the door looks like a plank of wood devoid of symbols. Acknowledged. I feel like I'm missing something blindingly obvious. Clothing, laundry. Actually, these clothes contain an unmeasured amount of exemplar technology. With respect to things like the metal alloys in the zippers, any plastic components, rare element magnets, maybe even the weaving patterns in the cloth. They're my property and indeed my only non-ideational property at this point, but project valuable to the point where your government actually needs to consider security to prevent them from being stolen. Any obvious solutions there? At least they have the concept of theft. She was starting to be slightly worried they didn't. Probably you should have personal security whenever you leave the house, but they should be safe enough here. Probably have me launder them with magic instead of giving them to the housekeepers, lest they damage them. Security. So checking explicitly, you've implied that this is a sufficiently high-security area to protect my property from whatever grade of criminal mastermind seems likely to target that property in hopes of obtaining a proprietary trade secret. Affirm? Yes. She can go double-check afterwards, but it seems like probably direct word from Asmodeus is enough justification for a lot of people parked outside keeping Keltham safe and keeping him from leaving. All right. I'll be troubling you to magically launder my clothes, and we'll add that to the rest of the informal debts I have piling up with you, which I assure you I am noticing. Can you think of anything else I should know or do before library? Oh, we were waiting on dinner, weren't we? Any notion of the timescale there? I would expect it'll only be a couple more minutes. What is your plan for the library, exactly, just to sit down with a history book and look up every reference until you've chased down everything? The plan is that... Unless there are entities here, which think and write books extremely quickly compared to Keltham, they probably cannot fake an entire library in order to control Keltham's flow of information. Lots of random sampling, accompanied by trying to infer back the world that the pages were written in. I'm not trying to acquire thorough knowledge of anything, just orient myself to this whole universe. Well, if you find the personal diaries of the Archduke... You've got to copy a page down so we can mysteriously reference it at parties, later, and make him wonder how much we know. That feels like the right amount of aesthetically evil, while completely unobjectionable even to good, which Keltham seems comfortable in. Dinner arrives. It is generous heaps of a dozen different things, since they didn't know what he'd like. Fish and rice and bread and shellfish and vegetables and stuffed pheasant and seared meat and fruits and pastries. Lady what? She must have been joking. Even most criminals wouldn't do that. And no sensible archduke would just leave his personal diaries in the library, either. Keltham samples everything and will gravitate towards the more protein-heavy dishes accompanied by fruit, treating the pastries and bread as a dessert. He chews the first bites deliberately, experiencing and considering and then eats much more rapidly after he has already observed the new experience. The food is much better than at the world wound, and she's going to enjoy it while it lasts. 
She also suspects people are frantically making some arrangements in the library, so it's better for Keltham not to be done too quickly, though she's also not going to observably stall him. When they're done, she'll ask which rooms are free and pick one out and demonstrate the symbol on the door. See you in the morning. Suppose so. I check explicitly. You don't expect me to accidentally get lost on the way to the library, or lost on the way back, in a way that I can't recover from by running into somebody to talk to. I expect not, but if you want an escort, I could make space in my schedule. Ugh, think I'm fine checking empirically how lost I get without you, before I assume it's bad enough you need to be always following me around. I'm just checking that it is, in fact, inside the disaster class, where you can sensibly plan to see what actually goes wrong and then recover, instead of some plausible-seeming missteps being bad enough to require advanced foresight. This language and the number of words it takes to say things owe oh, his ass. You will not wander off a cliff or through a portal to the abyss if you get lost, and probably some of your securities following you, so it should be recoverable. Under other circumstances, Keltham might ask about intelligence amplification headbands that might prevent him from forgetting his path. But mind amplification is also mind alteration, so Keltham is not about to just yank one of those things onto his head, even if supplied, before he manages to run across some mentions of them in the library. Keltham shall now attempt to explore yet another place where no Dath Alani has ever been. How is he doing at finding the library? If he asks the staff, they will show him down a flight of stairs and through a courtyard to a very modest library, really. Two rooms with high ceilings and shelves full of books. Also, it's full of teenage girls sitting three to an overstuffed armchair and giggling. Is there anything that looks like a section on gods or a section on global factional politics? Keltham is A, bent on his mission, and B, processing teenage girls as extremely normal inhabitants of libraries. It may take him a bit of a delayed drop to ask what they're doing in a supposedly high-security area, and why the gender ratio. There's a section on theology, which looks rather sparse, and a section on world affairs, which seems to have the global, factional politics he might hope for. The teenage girls observe him raptly, but don't interrupt, he looks in a hurry, and also, to detect magic. There's clearly several high-level invisible people shadowing him, which means it would be a bad idea to make sudden movements, even ones that are just accidentally dropping your pen on the floor so as to strategically pick it up. Keltham rolls against his SED to notice the attention. Fails. Theology seems like the highest priority. Pull a random book and look at a random page. A series of mental exercises for Asmodeans. To practice submission to the will of their god, blah blah blah. Meditations for executing on their intentions successfully. Meditations to consider before making a promise. Meditations for raising Asmodean children. Meditations for blah 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 anticipating hell in a productive and confident fashion. Hmm, seems broadly consistent with the picture Carissa drew so far. Different random page. The physical structure of hell. It's not technically a plane, but nine of them. The only one accessible from the rest of the universe is Avernus, the first, where souls go when they die. The second is only accessible from the first and third, the third from the second, etc. Let's try a different book. Do any of them look like they'd have information about the other gods? Nope. This library contains no books about gods other than Asmodeus. Those are illegal in Cheliacs and could have been acquired on very short notice, but spot modification would be, well, hellish. 
Okay, that's downright odd, given the extent to which negotiations between gods formed part of this world's foundations of order, in the mental picture Keltham was drawing. You shouldn't be able to understand current reality without knowing who had what utility function. Book on history of divine negotiations? Also, no. That's not even a kind of book that can be found on short notice. It's probably in some private libraries, but not Chellish private libraries. A book about Shellen, goddess of art, love, and beauty, has turned up on a shelf in the corner. He must have missed it in his first scan. Great. Let's flip to a random page in that one. Shellen once had a brother, but then his utility function was inverted and he became a god of torture. It's very sad. Shit, what, okay. Let's temporarily forget Breath First Search and read the pages before and after that one. For a time, she and Dubral shared the portfolios of beauty, love, and the arts, and were worshipped by the early Taldans, until at some point they argued, and Dubral abandoned Golarion for the far, dark places between the plains. When Dubral returned to Golarion, he had become the god of mutilation, misery, and torture. Zon Kuthon. Believing that Dubral still existed within Zon Kuthon, Shellen reached out him, but he pierced her hand with his black nails. When Thrawn, their father, tried to welcome him, Zon Kuthon captured and tortured the wolf spirit beyond recognition. One myth speaks of how Zon Kuthon first came into conflict with Abadar, the god of culture, wealth, and stability. Seeing the crimes Zon Kuthon committed in Golarion, Abadar knew that he must be punished and made a bargain with the evil god. Zon Kuthon agreed to go into exile on the Plain of Shadow for as long as the sun hung in the sky in exchange for an item of his choosing from the first vault. This imprisonment was not meant to be over as soon as it was, though, and when the sun stopped shining upon Galarian during the Age of Darkness, Abadar reluctantly honored the deal, giving Zon Kuthon the first undead shadow, which the Midnight Lord has used to craft evil creatures in his realm of Sovikin ever since. Okay, the utility function inverting thing does not sound like a thing that typically happens to humans walking around. But shit, Galarian has issues. How do you even manage to negotiate to a multi-agent optimal boundary with the god of mutilation, misery, and torture? Would it accept non-sentient things to torture if the non-sentient things were configured carefully enough to match its utility function? Or is the utility function too precisely inverted to accept that? Does it have any interest in common with the unflipped gods besides the continued existence of the world, despite Rovagug? Let's put this book back for now and go look at global politics. There's more here. Perhaps the Archduke found it more interesting. There are dozens of different countries with their own summary books and then books on the ancient Tian empires and lessons from the pharaohs and great heroes of history and then books on trade routes and shipping and what plants grow in what places and what magical beasts roam which wildernesses. Several of the books have maps, and the maps agree on nearby things and diverge on faraway things. Nidal, a nearby country, ruled by Zon Kuthon, the flipped utility function god. At the annual festivals of mutilation, people stab one eye out or cut off some of their toes. Servants of other gods are barred from entering on pain of a slow and horrible death. Some good cults are suspected of operating there anyway, though it rarely ends well for them. 
A random flip reveals some sketches of Nidal's law enforcement, grotesquely scarred people with a bloody whip in one hand, a first-person account from a refugee who escaped to Cheliax and converted to the service of Asmodeus, an excerpt from Zon Kuthun's holy book's writing about how best to keep people alive while you torture them. Anduran, another nearby country, was part of Cheliax until it broke away blah blah blah. Anduran has now banned evil and is trying to require everybody to be good, with limited success. One of their major social problems is that all of their productive, intelligent evil people left. Another is that they keep aggravating their allies in the inner sea by refusing to contain piracy. Another is that they abandoned law when they banned evil, and there's been a corresponding breakdown of the social order. A random flip. Evil people forced to flee. Andoran tell horror stories of the disarray caused by the country's ban on evil. A ship captain killed by pirates and subsequently resurrected at great cost to his family. Accuses the government of Andoran of permitting the pirates to stalk the seas for their own benefit. A historian on how much more prosperous Andoran was when it was part of Cheliax. Osirian is ruled by a god-king selected by Abadar, god of blah blah blah. It's a poor country but a populous one, fed by the generous grain crops of the Sphinx River, and has a wealth of ruins of the ancient Osirian Empire that adventurers are now painstakingly extracting from their trapped tombs. A random flip. Osirion is a prospective ally for Cheliax due to their shared commitment to law. Osirion's tombs contain relics of an ancient, more advanced civilization. The pharaohs of 7,000 years ago, and Cheliax is collecting and learning from many of those artifacts. Another flip is about how Osirion banned grain exporting. Rahadum, another neighbor, bans all the gods and all their servants. On a random flip, a theologian argues that this is ineffectual. The exact way gods get information about the material plane isn't known, and they certainly benefit from worshippers but banning their worship, even if people obeyed the ban, which they won't, just means the gods would rely more heavily on non-worshipper methods, which do exist. The gods, for instance, know of faraway worlds where they aren't worshipped at all. On another random flip, the case is made that Rahadum was more prosperous when it was part of Cheliax. Another one is about shipping lanes. Any fine subtleties of the Chelish authors are going to be completely wasted on Keltham due to his absolute incredulity at this whole library section. On the first random page Keltham opened to, the author was saying what some duke, high-level government official, was thinking while ordering the east gates to be sealed, which, like, what— how would the historian know what somebody was thinking? At best, you get somebody else's autobiographical account of what they claim they were thinking, and then the writer is supposed to say that what was observed was the claim, and mark separately any inferences from the observation, because one distinguishes observations from inferences. This. This is supposed to be an expository educational history book. This is supposedly in the non-fiction section. What did the author think they were doing? This isn't reasoning, this is ink somebody spilled on a page and it happened to come out looking like words, and everybody was so amazed at the coincidence, they decided to reprint it. There are no probability distributions on this page. There are no numbers on this page. There are no distinct premises and conclusions anywhere on this page. This page contains more fallacies than it contains distinct words. Keltham puts back the book. 
Maybe it was just written by a three-year-old. Yeah, Keltham already knows that it wasn't written by a three-year-old. It was written by somebody from a lower intelligence world. But maybe the next book will have been written by a member of the cognitive elite, wearing an intelligence headband. The next random page in the next random book is written like a school parody of how you would critique somebody else's faction if it had never occurred to the writer that anybody in the audience might think that the other faction would have a different story. Like, the author doesn't even try to explain what the other faction thought they were thinking. The other faction is just supposed to be running around being wrong because they are the wrong faction. Okay, so Keltham is just going to adopt the rule of not believing anything that a Galarian author seems to explicitly be saying, or even calling attention to, and is going to flip through random pages only trying to infer the world that gave birth to these parodies of argument and exposition, just looking for things that the author seemed to assume away as politically non-valent, obvious, uncontroversial truths, the equivalent of mentioning that the sky is blue when that's not a focus of political attention. To the extent Keltham supposes that this class of inference is reliable, it does seem to be confirmed that a place called Chiliax exists. Some other points that Keltham is able to pick up on. People had higher tech 7,000 years ago. What? What happened? Some kind of info-hazard thing that required all the tech to be buried? But if that was true, why are they digging it up again? When Dathilan ran into the past info-hazard, they went to a lot of trouble to mothball all the old cities— Nobody sane would just wander in and start looking at them without knowing why they'd been hidden. You get to be a really powerful wizard by killing monsters rather than by deliberate practice. Why? Governance as Keltham knows it does not exist. Prediction markets do not exist. Delegates, electors, legislators, and tribunes do not exist. Nobody seems to be talking about anything that looks like an obvious preference aggregation mechanism. Choices get attributed to people, and it is at no point obvious why anyone would listen to those people. People fight giant destructive battles, and it does not occur to any author to remark or explain on how multi-agent optimal this is not. It doesn't seem to be a remarkable fact when it gets mentioned in passing. It looks sort of like, factions have sharp territorial boundaries, and there's a thing where you kill the person at the top of the faction, and the people inside the faction all switch sides to the other faction that killed them. Which what? Why would anybody do that? Why, of all the things to successfully coordinate on, would people coordinate on that? Keltham is really missing something here about individual incentives. This entire planet is so on mind-altering drugs, Keltham doesn't even just what-what-what. By the time Keltham reaches anything about Zonkuthon, he catches a glimpse of an info-hazardous page, winces, and just shuts the book. He may eventually have to work out what is true, and what is drugs, but whatever that was it is probably not the most important thing for him to deal with right now. In fact, maybe he should move on from the political history shelf entirely. So is there a section of this library about magic? How does it even know seriously what the fuck Galarian? There's a book on wizarding education, and a book on dragon spellcasting, and a book on famous sorcerer bloodlines and their achievements. And what occurs, do tell, if Keltham flips to the start of the wizarding education book, in hopes of finding a careful and reasoned exposition of background theory. There's a long essay by the author about the foolishness of other wizards who took the wrong approach to the craft and didn't approach it with the discipline Asmodeus requires. Then there's a long recounting of his achievements as a wizard and as a teacher of wizardry. After that, there's a discussion of the simplest spells and meditations you should do in order to find them easier to hold in your head and cast properly, and tips for common errors, and some argumentation about which simple spell is the best to start with. There's no mention of needing to fight monsters in the wizarding education book. 
There is a mention that you should inflict punishments at the end of the day because students are unlikely immediately after a punishment to be able to concentrate on their spell books. And if you're worried they'll run home and get it healed, you can keep them late. Maybe there's some local custom about how written knowledge is supposed to be a record of all the things you shouldn't do. And from this, you can infer what you actually should do instead. Keltham genuinely has no idea if he's even supposed to believe all the bragging the author puts in front of the book about his achievements, as presented in a format that Keltham himself finds almost absolutely unconvincing. Maybe it's this huge string of blatantly false advertisements, and it's actually signaling cleverness at crafting false advertisements, or... Keltham doesn't get Galarian at all. Is he supposed to believe the thing about storing up punishments to be inflicted at the end of the day, in defiance of all behavioral shaping theory if you were even doing that in the first place, and the implicit claim that students are so admiring of this teacher and desirous to learn his knowledge that they stick around even after being hurt? Keltham is guessing this is just a deliberately unbelievable status brag claim in a very alien format? Whatever. It should mostly fall under the rule, for the moment, of not believing any fact which a drugs author seems to be actually trying to make him believe. Mostly, Keltham is interested in the discussion of the simplest spells, the meditations, the tips for common errors. How does a very basic spell cast actually work, if Keltham tries taking what the author says at face value, when it hopefully maybe looks like the author isn't being political, and would be discussing something that ought to be politically nonvalent ordinary common knowledge? Magic behaves sort of like a liquid, but it clings to itself. When you have a very little bit of it, the clings-to-itself effects dominate the behaves-like-a-liquid effects, and you can shape it, which is done through the will of the caster. On a complex scaffold that is itself magic, doing it without a scaffold is possible. Magic got started in the first place, after all, but much, much harder. The simplest spells are those that need to be shaped as closed two-manifolds, and you have to understand how magic behaves reasonably well to get it to the correct shape, and then you have to stabilize it and tie it off, after which it sits until you want to cast it. Casting it is much simpler. You untie it and flick it loose. Does it say how to get a very little bit of magic and use your will on it in the first place? Sort of thing Keltham could try literally right now. You need a spell book? And inks which anchor the scaffold. The kinds of ink appropriate for spellbooks are so appropriate because the ink binds to the magic well. Here's the spell diagram he personally uses for new students. Though, of course, they'll develop their own diagrams over time as they optimize their scaffold for their personal needs. Once you have a spellbook and inks anchoring the scaffold, you should be able to learn to feel the magic. The meditations help with that. Book author recommends preparing spells on the student's scaffold while they concentrate. It might be easier for them to feel the magic while it's in motion. Some students pick it up quickly, within an hour, mostly predicted by lots of childhood magic exposure. He doesn't know any promising student to have taken more than a week. Okay, promising enough for trying later. But really, it feels like there should be much more knowledge available on what magic does, even if the natives have no clue why, some overview of what it can do. Fine, they didn't write their books for aliens, but Galarian seems to run on magic to an amazing extent. There really ought to be a book that gives him a better overview of magic than this, somewhere in this library. Why is there no such thing as a subject encyclopedia on any of these shelves? Do subject encyclopedias just not scale down to a much smaller Galarian book market? Shouldn't they be able to produce small subject encyclopedias? 
Maybe he's just not in the reference section, because the reference section is behind a secret door that looks like a bookcase, as any habitual user of Galarian libraries would surely know and take for granted. When you buy your houses separately from the land it's on, you can afford nice high-tech specialist manufactured houses. For many, many Dathalani, the definition of nice would very much include a library with hidden doors that look like bookcases. Why, what else would you spend money on? Keltham turns around, with the intention of identifying some prior library inhabitant, who might be able to explain if he's just doing library exploration completely wrong. Keltham very quickly turns around and looks back at the bookshelves again. It's not what you would call an optimal strategy, but it is, at least, a strategy which can be implemented fast. Emergency internal Keltham meeting right now. That sure is a lot of girls his age, pretty ones, in a high-security zone. He does not, in fact, have any right to be surprised by this. Dathilani civilization would likely try exactly the same thing if somebody showed up from an alternate timeline, with plus four SD intelligence, derived from a different selection history, yielding an entirely different set of intelligence-promoting alleles. What does his brain mean? There's got to be more to think than that. Could this have, like, happened in some way that would fit exactly into his prior life narrative, so he would already know exactly what to think of it? Is that too much to ask? Okay, okay, let's just slowly back up and start with most important question here. Does he want to have sex with all the girls in this room? There's not enough girls in this room if they want to make sure to grab a copy of each of his 46 chromosomes with, say, 99% probability. Well, an interesting point. This is not really the central point under consideration. Does he want to have sex with all of these girls plus a large further number of such, thus having enough kids to bring the Dath Ilani Geneset to this world and... What? Bump up the average central intelligence factor by half a standard deviation. How many generations would that take, and would it actually be all that useful compared to whatever heredity optimization processes the locals are running already? Keltham doesn't actually know offhand how to do those calculations. If Keltham had known this was how his life was going to go, he would have spent a lot more time studying population genetics, sexual technique, and flirting. It has been a while since Keltham's mind has ended up in this much internal disarray. It's going into loops and repeating the same facts, and occasionally the same blank stares, just rephrasing the same thoughts over and over. Like, that sure is a lot of pretty girls, and they're probably also some of the smartest girls around locally, even if that's not directly visible, at least if they want the next generation of wizards directly off this event, which I would in their shoes, and I should have realized earlier that rather than just showing up with my head stuffed full of valuable extra-worldly information in my brain, I actually had a whole lot more highly valuable information inside my testicles. It is, in fact, this last thought that snaps him out of it. Sometimes, just rephrasing your existing thoughts in slightly different ways does knock something loose, as long as you're not repeating exactly the same thoughts. The sum of his private property on arrival, valuable knowledge, slightly valuable clothing, and valuable genes. Those sneaky sneaks. They thought that maybe if they threw enough girls at him fast enough, he'd be seduced into just going along with that, without first asking for any form of compensation for his valuable genetic information. Or possibly they were planning to offer him whatever standard. Keltham has not observed them try to get away with his precious bodily fluids without paying. One must distinguish inference from observation, after all. But yeah, no actual sex with these girls until Keltham is oriented enough to know how local money works and set up an explicit contract. Snuggles. Oral. Okay, so given the sheer amount of internal disarray he has going on here, he is going to give himself time to think about this, absorb, and not come to a conclusion right away. They do say not to rush into sex if you are feeling rushed, and that probably extends unchanged even to very large quantities of sex. 
Why is his brain slightly reluctant to accept that obvious-seeming meta-conclusion? Invisibly, and also inaudibly, two high-level wizards spent a truly heroic length of time trying to have straight faces at each other, and it's not totally clear who failed first because it was basically simultaneous. I, says one of them, the one who doesn't need to breathe because he has a necklace of adaptation, reject the explanation that this is what people are like without free will or with better training in not using it. The other one doesn't have a necklace of adaptation and does need oxygen, and so takes several minutes to catch his breath. My theory is that, probably if I can trust my premises here, Cheliax exists. We should add to the list of things that go wrong with a honeypot setup. He decides that the presence of girls implies that his ejaculate is very valuable, and he should not give it away for free. Should we, though, when it will absolutely never, ever happen again? Well, if we commission thousands of him, maybe in a few generations, it's a common problem. Gods forbid. From what I know, the gods seem supportive. You know, if Nethus gives people too much of himself, they're driven mad and destroy themselves. Maybe if Abadar gives people too much of himself, they're driven mad and end up like this. I have heard as many as several things about the pharaoh of Osirion, and that seems probably wrong. But was it presented with the observations and inferences separated, with numbers for every sentence, no? I submit that you know nothing about Osirion except that a book writer wanted you to believe that it exists. Observation. Osirian women can't own money. Inference. Therefore, the pharaoh probably does not oblige them to pay him to fuck them. I didn't hear any numbers. 37.15896. Ah, a credible claim then. If you wish to support the production of this AI voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.